I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome once again. This is Matt Dixon, and this is the Purple Patch Podcast. And today, we're... Excuse me. Ah, it's gone again. Yep. Today, hyperkinesis, an involuntary muscle contraction. Ah, cramps. The subject of today, the bane of an endurance athlete's existence and something that can be so frustratingly debilitating and painful in our pursuit of performance. Today, we dig in. We seek an understanding a set of strategies to prevent, and how to manage cramps when they occur. We also talk about aftercare and, of course, what to do if our preventative measures don't work. I wish I could promise you that this podcast will change your performance life, that cramps will become a part of your history, never to be faced again. But I cannot promise that. But what I can do with framing and understanding, as well as some implemented strategies, I hope that you can begin to manage and mitigate risk and ensure that they have less of a voice in the room when it comes to the quality of your personal performance. But before we squeal and shriek to the pain of cramping, let's hit word of the week. We like the way he thinks, serious with the way. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek, it's the dictionary. Yes, the word of the week this week is camp. Camp? Kona Camp 2019. It's live. Guys, it's up on the website. March 5th through 10th in Kailua, Kona. We're doing it different this year. You see, traditionally, our training camps are based up at the Manalani, which is about 35 miles north of the town of Kailua, Kona, the host town of the Ironman World Championship every year. But I want to talk this week about camps a little bit, and I want to give you an understanding of what I view as a really valuable experience for every endurance athlete. The first thing to understand is there is a vast difference between a camp and a training escape. A training escape is when you go away with your buddies, you go and pile on a good amount of work without the stresses of life, family, and work. But the camp and the value of a camp should be very, very different. We could break it down into three main components that we want athletes to leave with. The first, education, understanding the why behind the sessions, how to actually implement appropriate training strategies. We want you to become empowered to understand, provide context with training. There also should be some genuine technical and skills-based coaching. In every discipline, in our case, swim, bike, and run, we want to improve technically, both in terms of how you're doing it from a pure technique standpoint, but also how you're actually mitigating conditions such as wind, heat, and terrain. And of course, oh, there's the training as well. Yes, a block of really high value training. But the truth is, the value of a camp is not really anchored in what you do when you're at camp. 
It's much more about the lessons that you bring home and implement into your training when you get home. And so with that in mind, that's the lens that we set up the training camp in Hawaii for. It's for all levels, genuinely all levels, for elite athletes down to contemplators that maybe haven't even competed in a triathlon yet. Seriously, we are the masters of one thing, and that's customization around your ability. And yes, that's a challenge. And we aim to challenge every single attendee. But at the same time, we want you to be challenged and be successful. It's easy for me to make you fail. In fact, I could have every camper fail on day one. But the real balance is challenging you and forcing you to grow while still being successful. And so if it sounds appealing, join us. An immersive educational experience and a whole bunch of fun with like-minded individuals. Myself, Paul Buick, the Purple Patch Coaches, all in. Six days in the sun, right in the middle of the Northern Hemisphere winter. Now, this camp sells out quick. Only come if you really want. And it's special. But if you are interested, feel free to reach out. See if it's actually for you. Questions at purplepatchfitness.com. We'd be delighted to have a chat and see if it's fit for you. But we're going to sell out in the next two weeks. So get cracking. And that's why you guys that are loyal listeners, the word of the week this week is camp. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. Yes, we are talking about cramping this week, a part of the athlete's experience, painful, agonizing, annoying. Cramping is a frustrating part of the endurance athlete life. And for many, those frustrations are amplified by the fact that there's seldom a quick diagnosis of cause, nor an easy solution for many. The whole area of cramping tends to be ultimately an experiment of one with plenty of conflicting and shaky research, interesting concepts and ideas that emerge, and different preventions and remedies that might work for some athletes, yet completely fail for others. We still cannot definitively establish what causes cramps. And many of the anecdotal preventions and fixings of cramping could easily be attributed to the all-powerful placebo effect as they could to the actual effectiveness of the intervention. And so as we dive into this subject today, I feel it's important for me to frame it and give a little bit of context of the lens that I look at this through. You see, I have to stand up straight away, put my hand up, put my hand on my heart, if it were, and say, look, I'm not on the cutting edge of physiological research into cramp effects and intervention. This piece that we're doing today is outlined from a collation of conversations with passionate experts in field, reviews of the existing literature that are out there, as well as, and I think most importantly, coaching observations and review. You see, as with other subjects such as nutrition or hydration, I hope what I map out today will require reworking and evolution in the coming months or years. Because as we continue to learn and grow and evolve and establish more around the causes and the cures, 
we should be open to new interventions and hopefully fixes of this thing that can debilitate so much good hard work that goes into your performance. So please, 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 please keep this in mind as you listen and as you apply to your own performance. So with that in mind, I think the first thing that we should do is frame the causes and the types of cramps. You see, the ultimate truth is that all cramps are not alike. And this is really obvious as soon as you begin to coach athletes across a ranges of person and type. Let's outline a couple of case studies. Imagine that I've got an athlete who consistently cramps in their calves. As soon as they hop into the pool following a running session, boom, the calves explode. On the flip side, imagine a different athlete who's swimming along and their calves cramp, but then their hamstring cramps, and then their hands start to cramp, and then their biceps. Well, in each case, we might not be able to fully identify the exact why of what happens in each, but it's really clear that the first case study is likely related to muscle fatigue, overuse, or weakness. But the second example is more likely to be related to something around blood chemistry or effects with neural. In other words, I think that we can break general cramp causes into two types. The first is biochemical or neural. So a cramp originating from either signaling from the central nervous system or something going on with blood chemistry. Or the second type, biomotor a cramp related to an overworking of a particular muscle or fatigue in a muscle, or I would add to it, changes in contraction patterns. These cramps are not the same. But even with these two cramps, I don't think that enables us to actually have a definitive cause of cramps in either scenario. Look, if I do 200 bicep curls after doing no bicep curls, there's a good chance that over time my muscle's going to fatigue and it might even cramp. But do I really know the signaling and the cause of that cramp? Well, let's start today with the Matt Dixon list of contributing factors for muscle cramps. And as we go through these, note that a few are a little bit more isolated in nature. Some are a bit more global. And a couple have some really interesting emerging science or interest, but still need some validity. In other words, they're working theory. When I go through this list, I think it should resonate with you the complexity of the challenge that we face when we come through and think about cramps. So here's the list, and there are 10 of them. Fasten your seatbelt. First of all, fatigue from training. You see, training loads should create fatigue. But too much training load accumulating in high fatigue is going to lead to a higher propensity of cramping. Now, this can come with under recovery from a poorly designed training program or going too hard in the easy days. It can come from too much volume, as many people call it, or too many hours of training relative to life or suitability for your appropriate level of fitness. And of course, too much global intensity within training. So if you are getting globally fatigued and it is accumulating, there's a correlation, and not a spurious correlation, a real correlation between the fatigue accumulation and the propensity for cramps. So we can label that as number one. 
Number two that I would add to it is poor supporting habits around that training. And so a lack of recovery or accumulation of stress from poor sleep, overcommitments in life, a lack of downtime is going to lead to additional stress and fatigue accumulation. And this correlation adds to your global fatigue and likely is going to increase your risk. And the reason I talk about this is that it cannot, particularly as a time-starved individual, just look at training prescription and execution to see a cause of fatigue accumulation. We also have to think about the impact of life stress. And if you are living a more stressful life with greater demands and a lack of downtime or the supporting habits around components such as sleep, then you're going to have a higher risk for cramping. Add to that nutrition. Is there going to be a nutritional impact? Now, often this is related to really poor fueling habits, under eating compared to the training demands, or even potentially low quality food choices that contribute to cramp risk. Do dropping electrolytes and minerals increase the risk of cramp? Maybe. But I tell you that if your food choices that you have in your nutrition are low in electrolytes and minerals, that's certainly a direct line between cramp risk globally. And so with that, we have to consider number three, a nutritional impact towards a contribution to cramping. Number four, life stress. So we talked about global impact of poor supportive habits around training, poor sleep, overcommitments, lack of downtime. But We can also say that cramping is closely associated with the occurrence of times of high stress in life. No matter what the root cause, high stress equals cramping. And this might include emotional stress, work stress, travel, and more. If you're spending a lot of time with high stress in life and you naturally bring that to your sport, there is, I would say, a high propensity for cramping. Number five, lifestyle, at least what I bucket called lifestyle. So we've already gone through many components of life, sleep, carrying through stress. But what I mean when I talk about lifestyle here is factors such as extended periods of sitting. So when you're sitting at your desk, driving, in other words, leaving the body in less than optimal functional situations. This will lead to a high potential of having areas such as hip flexors cramping when you actually lengthen them and get into exercise and training. Because they're shortened for so much time, there is, of course, a natural propensity to lengthen them, change the contraction pattern, and hey, presto, ah, I'm cramping again. All right, we're five through. Stick with me. I told you, there's a lot that goes into cramping. Number six, Muscle weakness and poor function. Almost every time that an athlete has high cramp occurrence, those athletes that are repeat offenders, we need to have an increased focus in strength and conditioning, including mobility work. And when we do so, there is a positive correlation on a decline of the symptoms of cramping. And so if you are a cramper, If that happens, one of the things I would look at is not just how much time you spend sitting or driving, but how are you as a regular functioning human beings? And as endurance athletes, when we run or swim or bike and repeat and repeat and repeat, so many people that offset 
while ignoring functional movement and strengthening of those muscles to improve general muscle health and then the lubrication and mobility of the joints are at a greater risk of cramping. And so strength and conditioning, yes, it's a performance improvement. Yes, maybe it can actually help prevent injury, but almost for sure it will help mitigate the risk of cramping. Number seven, sport-specific fatigue. So here's an example of sport-specific fatigue. Let's use a triathlete. When that triathlete is riding their bicycle, and sometimes when they're down in their time trial position, some riders tend to have a low ankling motion. What I mean by that is that the heel remains higher than the toe. And there's nothing really wrong with that in the pedal stroke as long as the force is always going perpendicular to the cranks. I threw that in there for the nerdy technical guys. But if you have a low ankling motion on your bicycle and you tend to keep your heel slightly higher than your toes, by definition, the calf muscle is slightly contracted. You are shortening the calf muscle. Now, you get off the bike and you start running, and you explode into running, suddenly that muscle is lengthening, and it is already fatigued, and that is a cause of cramping. So obviously, before we even start to talk about prevention, there's a component there. Is there some sport-specific fatigue that can occur? We can talk about that with sighting in swimming, with how you're sitting on the bike, your posture and form in running. There's lots of sport-specific muscle fatigue that can occur that can increase the propensity for cramping. Number eight, shifting blood chemistry. So research shows that dehydration likely isn't a direct cause of cramping. The myth of dehydration linking to cramping is there and still loud and proud. But while we don't think that actual dehydration is a cause of cramping, we do know that performance declines as blood volume decreases. And hydration has a direct impact on blood volume. And so we also know that for an athlete to absorb calories and electrolytes effectively, those two components, the calories that you ingest and the electrolytes that are blended in, must be dilute enough for absorption to occur effectively. So what this means is that while we are confident that dehydration doesn't cause cramping, it doesn't diminish the role of hydration performance for blood delivery, cooling, and caloric and electrolyte transport. Interestingly, anecdotal evidence displays the benefit of electrolyte replenishment in training and racing with longer endurance athletes benefited from well-tested hydration strategies that provide about 800 to 1500 milligrams of sodium every hour. And so while the research is interesting in shifting blood chemistry, it does seem to be when we combine research with anecdotal and observational theory that shifting blood chemistry plays some form of a role in cramping. And so this is where it starts to tread into individualization and in the experiment of one. But what we're going to do is we're going to label shifting blood chemistry as the number eight cause of cramping. Number nine, it could be neural. 
You see, while number eight, we talk about shifting blood chemistry, there is at the same time some really interesting research and thinking around the neural effects of cramping. In other words, the signaling that comes from the brain, the central nervous system, and delivers the neural firing for the muscles to contract. And is there some confusion or fatigue that occurs from that neural element that causes muscle cramping? There are actually products that are already on the market, even though I would say the research isn't quite complete on this yet. But I think that what we can do right now is put it down as a potential contributor to cramping, and therefore it's number nine on the list. And number 10, poor pacing. Poor pacing. This is directly related to factors such as fatigue coming into the race and pacing relative to fitness preparation, or the effect of pacing within the environment of the day, such as added heat and humidity. All of this can lead to a catastrophic increase in core temperature and an increase of muscle fatigue and the likelihood of cramping. Now, there is one bonus that we talk about here. That's our list of 10 potential causes of cramping. But there's a bonus little element here, genetic predisposition. You see, you might be good looking, like me, but even I have my challenging English teeth. You see, we all have our thing. Many athletes simply navigate their sporting life with little or no occurrence of cramp. And others suffer just with the first bars of Stairway to Heaven, their muscles falling to sink and cramp spouting the tune from a muscular effort. You see, we all do have our thing. And if you're lucky in this area, or you have the gift of navigating the pains and tribulations of dealing with high cramp occurrence, it isn't a weakness, it's a fact. So as you can tell, it's quite a list. In fact, it is a mass of related and unrelated factors that can all be potential contributors And this is why I started this discussion by saying, I cannot promise a quick fix. I can't offer you an easy solution. But what we can do is go into some healthy preventative measures to try and mitigate the risk and dilute the occurrence. So before we talk about management, let's try and lower that risk. Let's match some preventative measures that open the door to your best performance that can be anchored around fitness and preparation and execution rather than the question, am I going to cramp or not? Well, the prevention of cramps arc from the specific preparation and approach on a daily level and then knock into the lead-in and the actual execution of the race. So let's go through by category. Let's first talk about your overall approach and your habits on a daily basis. So the first is nail the basics. You have to make sure that you're executing a suitable training program that is sustainable and fits within context of your life. You see, I've had many discussions around performance and you can go back and listen to other podcasts where I've talked about the elements of an endurance training program and integrating into a time-starved life. And that, of course, is to yield your best performance. But when we narrow it down and we talk about cramps, it absolutely has its role to play. 
And so I encourage you to double down and think about a smart and sustainable training program and not have an emotional lens when it comes to training, but a pragmatic lens that, yes, maintains specificity, but enables consistency. As much as possible while executing and managing that training program, we also want to mitigate life stress. And so that includes components such as getting enough sleep, setting yourself up for appropriate sleep, using strategies such as meditation and downtime and naps to give yourself opportunities to lower life stress. With that, we want to not carry stress into your sport and your race. We talk so much about people expressing their stress through their sport, holding tension in the shoulders when they run. Instead, if you can let it go, be supple. Think about moving almost like you're just holding a small child rather than like your Rocky Balboa. You're going to mitigate and prevent the risk of such high cramp occurrence. But that's not the only thing you can do in prevention. Yes, you want a smart training program. You want to support that with adequate recovery and good quality sleep. And you want to try and do all if you can to mitigate global life stress. But you also have to have a really smart basic approach to your eating and fueling. Now you can go back and listen to the nutrition podcast, the fueling episodes that we've done, but it's key. Post-workout fueling. Make sure you're getting enough calories to support your training load. Ensuring that those calories are full of vitamins and minerals and building blocks of healthy living and life. Because while electrolytes are thrown onto packages of sports nutrition products, electrolytes are in your food. And fruits and vegetables have more electrolytes than you could ever need and beyond. So yes, eat and fuel appropriately. Strength training. It's key. We talked about it. Functional movement, making sure that your joints are not like rusty gates, but instead mobile and free of tension and ensuring that the actual tissue health is loaded up, not through the catabolic state of just a whole bunch of endurance training, but the anabolic load and stress of strength and conditioning. It is going to help your muscles be healthy. It's going to improve the dialogue between brain and muscles, and it's going to mitigate the risk of cramps. Now, with all of that in mind, the one kind of component is, yes, for some athletes, for some athletes, some supplementation is helpful. And of the electrolytes and minerals that are probably hardest to replenish in your diet as it relates to cramping, it's probably magnesium. And so if you are a cramper, yeah, it might be a good idea to take a nightly supplement of calcium magnesium. I might just think about pulling out of that in the three or four days before in a race because sometimes it can lead to a little GI distress. But hey, I'm not a big supplement king. I'm not a pedal peddler, but calcium, magnesium, nightly supplement probably help prevent the occurrence of cramps a little bit. The final components that we talk about, well, on the bike specifically and on the run, fit and posture, making sure that you're putting yourself a position on the bicycle to not maximize key localized fatigue in your muscles. So are you able to sit with a relaxed neck? Are you sitting in a position that's not putting too much strain on your lower back or tension between your shoulders? Are you pedaling with proper dynamics to try and minimize the risk of cramping in muscles? 
All of this is going to help be a preventative measure. You want your bike position not just to be aerodynamic, but to be sustainable and comfortable and powerful. And finally, race-specific training. You see, if you're going to go and do an open water swim, and it happens to be in an ocean with a whole bunch of choppy waves, by you training in a flat pool, where you're never having to get used to the muscle fatigue and lifting your head up to sight in the right direction as comes with swimming in an ocean, there's a higher risk of cramping. And if you're doing all of your bicycle riding in a dead flat environment with no variance at all, and then you throw yourself onto a hilly or rolling course, guess what? There's a higher risk of cramping. You see, the more specific training that you can do to prepare yourself for the specific demands of the events you're going to race, coming down from conditions to terrain to actually running off the bike in training, the better prepared you are and the more physiologically familiar the body's going to be when it comes to race day. And of course, that's going to lower the occurrence risk in cramps. So what can we do in the lead into an event? We've got daily habits, we've got approach to training, hopefully it's integrated and it doesn't accumulate stress. We hope that you're arriving to race day fresh and fit, or like we like, as we like to say, fit and fresh. Well, what can you do leading into a race? If you are a cramper, I already mentioned calcium magnesium. That's a good approach. The second, maintain hydration. So many people fall for the hyperhydration strategy. I would encourage you to maintain your hydration strategy. You don't need to turn into a camel. The last thing you want to be doing is walking around the expo of event with a big water bottle duct taped to your wrist and you're just pumping yourself full of fluids. Because the key is to maintain the rhythm and approach that has been so effective for you and hopefully trained in training. And so keep the rhythm. You keep the rhythm of training, you keep the rhythm of sleeping, you keep the rhythm of eating, and you keep the rhythm of hydration. And the only little caveat to that is if you are going to race in an environment that brings an additional stressor such as heat and altitude. And even then, you don't become that camel. You just up a little bit of the hydration so that you can offset the fluids that you're losing as a natural part of being in that environment. The final part of the lead-in to prevent cramps, heat acclimatization. If you're coming into an environment that is hot and humid, there is an opportunity to prepare to operate in such conditions and actually lower the physiological stress or improve your ability to deal with the physiological stress that's coming. So how do you actually do that? There's some sauna treatments that you can do post-exercise, hopping into a sauna after your key sessions, making sure that you're sitting there without hydrating for about 15 or 20 minutes. You can also include some hot training sessions, making sure that you're avoiding doing those sessions when they're anchored around key intervals or specificity to get you ready for the race. I'm going to add some of those notes into the show notes, so we won't get into it there, but feel free to go to the resources and we can take it from there. Okay, so we've done all we can to prepare. We've come in with great basic habits, a smart approach to training. We've led into the race with proper hydration, not being a camel, maintained the rhythm of training and eating. We've acclimated to the heat and the environment a little bit, and maybe we took a little bit of a supplement of calcium and magnesium. Let's talk about execution. Okay, 
What do we need to do to prevent cramping? Well, the first is, yeah, retain your hydration strategy. You don't need to pump yourself full of fluids, but ensure that you're transporting the calories, electrolytes, and minerals that you need to support your performance. You also need to think about proper pacing. And proper pacing has to be done within context of your genuine preparation, current state of fitness, and the environment that you're racing in. In addition to that, you want to try and lean into this magic word, variance. The body hates monotony. And so when you're actually swimming or riding or running, look for opportunities to create variance to change the stimulus on the muscle. And that can be on your position that you're riding on your bike, using opportunities to change gears, to stand out of the saddle, to stretch the lower back to ensure that you're deploying different styles of running as you're going through different terrain. Maybe you're keeping slightly shorter steps, pushing off the big toe, getting a little bit of bounding as you're going up grades, keeping the leg speed coming up as the grade is going downhill, making sure that you're finding variance because that length and change of stimulus is going to help you create or avoid monotony. And that's going to offset the big demands of cramping that the muscles will be crying for if you just leave it in one gear, one cadence, one stride length, and one foot speed. And finally, underneath that, understand that you need to have an awareness of what is happening. It's not okay just to increase foot speed or to stand up occasionally. You want to actually have an awareness of what you're trying to do. So lengthening the muscles If you are a low ankler on the bike, making sure that before you come into transition, you stand up a little bit, you drop the heel down, you open and let's call it stretch the calf a little bit, making sure that you're preparing the body for the movements that it's going to do in any case or cause or position in the race. And by keeping that awareness, you're starting to help prevent the occurrence of these little buggers. Finally, what works. Look, there's an element of execution where I say experiment of one. Start to learn what works with you. And you know what? I don't even care if it's a placebo. You see, ultimately, it doesn't matter what the research says. If you find something that is effective, use it. And let me give you an example. If you believe and test some anti-cramp mixture that's focused on neural signaling, Is it valid? Is it researched? Is it truly the reason? You don't have to answer this. If you believe it and you feel like it works, in the example of cramps, go ahead, use it. And I say this, this little tangent on the show, I say this as a person who is vehemently passionate about pseudoscience, fake promises, and life hacks. I can't stand that whole area in industry. In fact, we're going to do an episode on supplements and pseudoscience. So you won't catch me buying into fake promise remedies on goop anytime soon. But I am a coach and I see athletes cramping and I see those athletes taking exogenous supplements and the cramping dissipates. And in this case, I don't need to know the why. I don't need to make a claim that supplemental sodium removes cramping. I need my athletes' cramps to go away. And as cloudy as this is, and I think that this is important to recognize, yeah, I hate pseudoscience. At the same time, 
I don't begin to try and claim to understand everything. And if something works for you, if you believe it, and when you are cramping, you actually take it and it prevents the cramps. Good on you. Keep using it. Is it because it works because of what the label says? Hmm, maybe, but I'm not even going to try and answer that. Now, finally on this, before we dive into the occurrence of cramping, I think it's important. Look, while I'll say this, why I say if it works, use it. I do think it's important that we maintain a real clarity in thinking and an objective analysis of the big picture. Because what I don't want you to take from that little episode there is that, hey, I've got an intervention and that's all I have to think about. Because any pill, any powder, any intervention is likely not going to be your answer. And so we always want to start at the top level, the big approach. We want to prevent it as much as possible. We want to think about strategies to try and and label these cramps to stop being an occurrence in your life. And then what we want to do now is answer the question, okay, but what if cramping occurs? Well, to go by the the medical term, hyperkinesis, it's an involuntary contraction of the muscle. And you know that it's painful. And it's important to realize that when a cramp occurs for you, that period of when the cramp is in action, and I would say the next 24 to 48 hours post cramps, particularly big cramps, the muscle is at its highest risk of greater injury. So when in spasm or cramping, your muscle is being held in forced contraction. And the pain that you feel is highlighting the risk you are under. It is a preventative measure. Now, many believe and promote, hey, the best intervention when you're under cramping is full stretching. But I really hesitate to use this word because I think that way too many athletes lead full stretching to get into a forceful action that almost rips the fibers out of contraction. And that just leads to a magnifying of that contraction into a muscle tear, hence a genuine bona fide injury. So that cramp, that short-term spasm, is suddenly a long-term issue. Instead, I think your aim should be to carefully and with great subtleness, lengthen the muscle. We want to ease the muscle back into length and cautiously and patiently transition back into moving and lengthening and shortening the movements that are associated with exercise. Now, in the heat of a race, this can be tough, but a more patient lens of gentle manipulation is far more likely to reduce the risk of a return to cramp in that same muscle if you take your time up front. Otherwise, boing, 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 you're going to bounce through the rest of the race, race, cramping, recramping, cramping, and recramping. So if the cramp does occur mid-race, it's critical that we maintain a pragmatic lens and we actually shift to a little time, at least maybe a temporary time of management. If it's occurring in running, that might mean that we have to start to integrate shifts in pacing or even walking. And I'd urge you to do whatever is necessary to offset those symptoms. So what that means is maintaining or increasing fluid intake, add some caloric consumption, and even consider supplemental electrolytes on course. Now remember, if in the race and you are cramping, 
you have proverbially your back against the wall. And so we have to deploy a solutions mindset to get you back into the field of play. And very, very similar to the athlete that refused to take a cola-cola from me while mid-ride and mid-bonk. Because, well, it's not on my fueling plan. You've got to remain open to intervention if cramping occurs to you. And that might mean thinking out of the box, trying new things, even when on the race course. Of course, the best intervention is one that is tested And unfortunately, that comes from experience. And the only times that you gain experience is when the muscle is cramping. And so, yeah, the more this occurs and the more frequency that you have cramps, maybe you have a better opportunity for learning. But when you are out there, don't just do nothing. Be open to it. The back's against the wall. We've got to get the cramps to go away. So in summary, lengthen gently and then intervene. Calories, hydration and likely some form of intervention, whether it's supplemental, neural or sodium type electrolyte. So what about aftercare? What do we do with cramps post-spasm? We get them to dissipate, we go away, and typically the sensations is a little tugging, a little soreness, almost feeling like a bruise. So if you use the hamstring or the muscle at the back of the leg as an example, If you experience an involuntary contraction during exercise, you should view that muscle as being high risk of greater injury. And so with this in mind, I would actually avoid a few things. I would avoid post-workout stretching. It feels like the muscle wants to be stretched, but it's at high risk and it's still in spasm. And so I would avoid stretching. It's likely going to be effectively bruised and stretching is only going to lead to tears. So instead, I would guide towards heat, sauna, hot tubs, soft massage of just gently flushing blood through the system. And I would avoid stretching and ice baths. Getting the blood moving in this manner with soothing interventions are way more positive. And in fact, this is the time in your life that factors such as compression tights or the different type of air compression boots are probably a really positive contribution to the cause here. And then the final piece of the puzzle is caution in the next day or so of activity. A day of lighter training is probably a good idea, but most importantly, as you build into the initial return to hard work or intervals, I would really encourage you not to go straight to hard. So don't go four by four minutes hard from the first interval, because we just don't have the door of opportunity of understanding whether that muscle is ready for work. Instead, go six intervals of four minutes and progressively build the intensity of these intervals by two so that you can start moderate, get stronger, and then get to the intensity that you want. This approach allows management, and it allows ongoing assessment within the session to really understand the muscle's readiness to accept the loads and the demands of your prescribed training. Of course, in this case, any lingering tightness or soreness should be managed. And the way to do that, remove the risky work, maintain caution, and create a big picture lens on consistency in your performance journey. So there we have it, the big subject of muscle cramps in training and racing. As you can tell, it's pretty complex and it really doesn't have an opportunity to say, hey, here's the definitive cause. Here's the outcome or prevention that you're looking for. But 
As with the rest of your performance, maintaining positive habits and a fit and fresh mindset is your best path towards mitigating the risk of occurrence. I hope that helps. Now, let's dive into some questions. And we have a time for a couple of questions this week because they're both focused around running. So I'm going to try and give you quick and dirty on a couple of questions that we go here because they're somewhat related in nature. And what I'm enjoying so far is the international flavor of our questions. We've gone Singapore, we've gone Switzerland. Uh, where else have we gone? We've gone Wichita, Kansas. Now we go Kent in England. So Kent is right over the river from where I grew up in, I'm afraid to say, Essex. And this question is from Andrew Wilkinson in the much nicer part called Kent in England, unlike us common folk in Essex over there. But Andrew says, loving the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom for the unwashed masses. There's the British humor coming out. But like, like most of your listeners, I'm trying to get the biggest bang for my limited training, but three kids, busy job, long train commute, etc. And I'm not sure where best to target improved run performance. I always thought that if I was a relatively decent runner with solid form, but in review of my latest half Ironman performances, the photos suggest otherwise. Knees collapsing inward, bum and belly sticking out, stride looking short, little lift at the knee. Actually, I think this is how I always run. The 70.3 fatigue just made it obvious. It's not just a bad camera angle. My 10K times have plateaued around 39 minutes and I'm looking to improve. And I'd like to be able to hold decent form of performance in an Olympic distance. What would you suggest? Should we swap some gym time into the mix? Or shall I get more running with a focus on hills and drills? So it's a great question and it's a big answer. I'm going to try and dilute this, Andrew, down to some, some pretty short components. The first is I think you might want to reassess or, or, or shift your lens on what is good running performance off the bike so far as form. And most effective half Ironman and Ironman athletes are not going to have inner gazelle-like qualities. And so when we close our eyes and we think about a Kenyan runner or a great marathon runner, they look graceful, they have great tensile strength. But it's not often sustainable apart from the very, very talented and elite over the course of that distance. And that doesn't mitigate the pursuit of better form. But I think it comes down to some really, really basic things that are habit driven. The first in your running, every step of running that you do in training, you should be looking to do with good form. So there's very low return on plodding around and accumulating distance with poor form. And so many people do that. They bank their whole success on the accumulation of miles and the accumulation of hours. And instead, what we look for is really, really effective good form. So what is that? Good posture, good tidy arm carriage, making sure that the shoulders are in front of the hips and ensuring that we have good foot speed. And that can create ruthless efficiency, as we might call it. If you start to feel like that form declines, you have to develop an awareness of how to reset. And that for many athletes is changing the rhythm and just simply resetting the form, coming back in, maybe slowing down a little bit to what we call MFP or minimal form pace running, and then coming back to good form pace. But for other athletes, that might be integrating strategic walking. 
making sure that we can maximize those elements we talked about purposeful walking not going for a sunday stroll in greenwich park but purposeful good posture making sure that you're getting good toe drive making sure the arm swing is occurring behind the arms and then transitioning back into good running in addition to that I'd encourage you to, yes, absolutely include components that are going to maximize the key elements of good running performance off the bike. So strength and conditioning, include that. Ensuring that you're using terrain in your running. Really, really good form-based hill running. But most of your hills should be somewhere around 4 to 6% in grade. Because as soon as you move above 6%, it starts to force you into very, very short steps without any of the bounding or propulsive properties. And ultimately, speed. The better the speed, and then the better the form. And so I would integrate more variants, making sure that you actually dissolve the need to accumulate too many miles and make sure that the value is based in running. One final word, don't forget swim and bike. It's hugely important in the effectiveness of your run. And so I would use swim and bike as a part of your running journey to help you improve. So I hope that helps. That's a conversation that's probably a whole topic of a podcast there. And in fact, look, I promise sometime in the coming weeks or months, I'm going to get to that podcast for you, Andrew. But I hope that helps as a quick and dirty overview. All right, so let's move on. Second question, Jordan Austin from Colorado. Thank you very much. Joining us from Boulder, Colorado, no less. Fantastic. Jordan says, I completed my first 70.3 this year in Boulder, but was really disappointed with my run. It was a hot day and I couldn't keep my heartbeat below maximum unless I walked. The moment I started jogging, it hit 175 beats plus. Is this simply a matter of heat training or is there some other preparation I could do on the bike to help keep my heart rate down, ensuring that speed is up? So Jordan, to to answer that first, I think that what we have to talk about is the race itself, Boulder, Colorado. It is a combination, even though you're in Colorado and you're at, you are at altitude, it is a combination which is the worst to ensuring good performance. The deadly combination of altitude and heat. Both of those are going to maximize physiological stress relative to any given effort. So you've got the whammy of altitude doubled up with heat. And so you weren't alone on that day of suffering. What ends up becoming really, really important is an understanding and a pragmatic mindset on the pacing of your bike. And so with the temperatures being up north of 100 degrees on that day, there was no choice but to start and be more cautious throughout the bike ride and to really ensure over the course of the bike ride that you were successful with your hydration strategy. With doing that, with it, with the assumption that you carefully manage the bike and the likelihood is that subconsciously or unconsciously relative to your train potential, the conditions of the day did not lead to great execution relative to those conditions. But assuming that that occurred and you had great hydration relative to the altitude, which is causing you to evaporate more quickly and the heat of the day, even if those two were great, there still had to be a really pragmatic lens of that run. And if you look at the pro field, incredibly slow run times relative to the level that those people usually train and race. And so with that in mind, we have to actually have strategic strategies 
to get off the bike and mitigate. And that starts with leading into the run, actually starting in the case of really starting easy. And that might include walking and then looking at the terrain of the course and ensuring that you're running the pieces that give you the biggest speed return and then walking or resetting form and managing heart rate stress on the elements where come with little return, little speed penalty if you're walking and also the time that you're going to jack up the heart rate the most. So what that means in the real world? Well, that probably what that means is every time you are faced with a grade, it's going to be minimal speed penalty to walk up that grade and manage the heart rate stress. But in the pieces, if the course were a little flatter or you had a downhill grade, that's a good speed and return. And you can run downhill without letting the heart rate come up too high. So I think in general, it's really likely a case of overpacing on the bike relative to fitness and preparation within the conditions. Potentially look at your hydration and then have a different lens of rather than getting off the bike and saying, now I've got to run and hope my heart rate doesn't go up. Actually really thinking through course management and having the courage of saying, hey, this is going to be a death march run. I'm going to have to manage that. It's probably going to include walking, but make sure that it is strategic. Ultimately, not an easy one. If you really want to maximize performance, you're probably not going to go to altitude and heat. It's just a tough race to do it. All right. Thanks so much for those questions, guys. Really appreciate it, Jordan. Uh, fantastic question, Andrew. We'll get to more podcasts around performance in heat and conditions as well as maximizing your run performance. But now let's wrap up the week. So what are the lessons that we had for the week? Well, we're talking about cramps and ultimately, look, here's the quick and dirty headline news. Number one, it's an experiment of one. In other words, you're going to have to do trials and probably some tribulations before you find the recipe that is appropriate for you. In general terms, there are two main types of cramps, some that are biochemical, so the occurrence happening to either blood chemistry or potentially neural factors, and second, biomotor, so the actual fatigue or overuse of a single muscle. When you do cramp, don't seek the immediate cause. It must be my nutrition. I need to hydrate more. Instead, realize that the causes of cramp might be layered. They are likely nuanced and they're probably global and related and maybe even some unrelated to the cramp. The causes can be bucketed into the approach, such as your training, life stress, supporting factors and strength and conditioning, or the execution, the pacing, the environment, your posture and position, and yes, even your nutrition. And so to prevent cramps, you need to go on a journey to seek the recipe that's right for you, making sure that you don't forget the supportive habits, sleep, nutrition, fueling. Think through execution, understanding that the body loves variance, how you're sitting on the bike, lengthening the calf to prepare it to run well. And ultimately, don't skip your strength and conditioning. So what to do when they occur? Be gentle. Lengthen, don't stretch. Heat and compression, over icing and stretching afterwards. And leave it alone. Don't beat the muscle up. Rest cures all. And finally, caution in return. Remember, don't chase the intervals as a make-up. Build in, ease in, and keep 
a lens of the big picture. Now, get on with your performance journey. I hope that helps. Onward, and I'll see you next week. Take care.